February 20th, 2011, lecture discussion number 33 on the Book of Romans. Okay, it's necessary to explain why I missed last Sunday. For those who follow along on the Internet and iTunes and Podbean and Sermon Audio, all of those places, uh, I'm incapacitated due to uh, bilateral inguinal hernia. Um, I have surgery on Monday morning, 7 o'clock. I'm speaking today, sitting down, and barring complications, I'll be here next Sunday. Some have asked me uh, how it is that I'm, we're dealing with all of this. Um, I'm using a time-honored tradition. Um, I'm going to all these doctors and negotiating because it's, a, it's very costly, as you know. And I'm using my likability coupled with being pathetic. And that's, I'm, a, I'm real strong on the pathetic. I got to work a little bit on the likability. But anyway, everything. I've missed more Sundays now in the last two months than the previous 13 years. It's, it's really starting to show up as I, uh, as I advance to John's age. So it's not going good. But hopefully, uh, this will be, this will fix a big problem that I've had now for four years that I've avoided and I deserve what I'm getting. There's no doubt about it. Look, I'm the one that did it. I feel a lot of guilt here. Um, those of you who'd like to know this, I'm sure both this audience and the Internet audience, there was a beam on the floor. It was a 5 and an 8 by 19, might have been a 21. It was on top of plywood, and I needed the plywood. It was 30 feet long. And so what did I do? I grabbed the end of it. It probably weighed 900 to 1,100 pounds. I grabbed the end of it picked it up and threw it as far as I could, like I always do. I do that a lot. I've been a coach many years, as you know, and it's always a good idea to grab the biggest kid who causes the most trouble and throw him the furthest. That's That makes the other kids all kind of get in line. It's a time-tested technique. So I know what I was doing. I was picking that beam up and throwing it because I was going to do what? I was going to show off. That's what I am. Watch me throw the beam. And I did. And as soon as I did, I knew, wow, that was bad, bad. But I faked it. Thought I pulled both groin muscles, but I didn't. Instead, I caused two hernias. And that's been going on now four years. The right side's really bad. The left side's not so bad, but um, but they're going to fix both of them. Okay, now with that out of the way... We once again have to ask ourselves, because I missed last Sunday, uh, where are we now? Not only did I miss last Sunday, but a whole bunch of you missed February 6th, which was uh, Super Bowl Sunday. And, um, and why did you do that? I know it's a high religious event, and many of you were seduced away from church by the sirens of Baal, foot, foot Baal, yeah, All right. I worked on that. I'm glad you laughed. One started out really good. He he, he went right off the bat. You'll have to move to the front. Uh, Okay. Though the highest and most holy of you did come on February 6th, and what did I do to you? I felt really sorry for a couple of you who were Michelle, who had come for the first time. I backed the truck up and just dumped all of 1 Samuel 15 as fast as I could because I had to hurry or I'd have got lynched and that would have saved me the cost of the hernias. I would have been strangulated, but it would have been in a different uh, 
part of the body. But I had to get done really fast, which made me go really quickly, and I did. I just backed up and I threw 1 Samuel 15 everywhere, asked a ton of questions, and did I answer any of them? No, and that's usual. Don't ever expect me to answer them. Why not? I want you to answer them. If I've done a good job, you'll go home and you'll think to yourself, what could possibly be the answer? Now, some of you don't, but hopefully most of you will begin to do that, and I want you to. Don't be satisfied with my answer. Try to figure the answer out yourself. There's nothing more exciting. I do it all the time. To come to a conclusion, and this is something that I often do, I come to a conclusion, I think I've got a good answer, that's the right answer, that's what it means. Then I hunt around in my library to find somebody that I hardly even know, haven't read maybe, and to see what he thought or she thought. It's very exciting when you find people that agree with you, not so much when they call you idiots from the 1800s. But but the point is, is that that's what I want you to begin to do. It's It's how you get through Scripture. And by the way, just as it was when I taught high school, the absentees long ago figured out that if enough of them were absent and they all conspired together... Uh, that I'd have to repeat the class. They know that. And that proves once again that there's no penalty for hooky. And and they're right again. I'm going to, when there's so few people, I have to back the bus up and gather all the hookyites. And that's what we're going to do today. What I attempted on February 6th, if you were here, if you weren't, I'm not going to read it today. I can't, it's too long. But what I attempted on Super Bowl Sunday was to add 1 Samuel 15 to 1 Samuel 28 as we head backwards towards Exodus 17 and 18, or to explain that better. The second part of the Amalekite trilogy to the third part. In other words, I took the second part of the Amalekite trilogy and I added it to the third part because we took the third part first, the second part second, and the first part third, if that makes sense. Did I say that right? Yes. Wow. So 1 Samuel 15, we added to 1 Samuel 28, but we're going in backward order because 1 Samuel 28 is the third part of the Amalekite trilogy. Eventually, we get to Exodus 17 and 18, and that's the first part. And that, by the way, is where the Amalekites attack. That is where the the incredible prophecy of the water from the rock, where Moses kills the rock, and out of the death of the rock comes the flowing water of life, and everyone drinks of that water. And that's an incredible prophecy. One of the uh, one of the uh, maybe the primary ones in all the Old Testament, one that will launch you into looking for the rest of them. But the Amalekites come and attack. Anyway, all of that in order to solve the fatted calf. Now, when I say fatted calf, hopefully you know that that's in Luke 15, uh, 11 through 31, the parable of the two sons. Notice how I say that. It is not the prodigal son. I know that's how everybody always tells you, but there's two sons there. They're of equal importance. One of them is the nation of Israel. I'll leave it to you to figure out who the other one is. One of them seeks to kill the father. In fact, at the end of that parable, if you take that parable to the Middle East, and it's been done many times, a gentleman named Taylor, I believe, Kenneth Taylor did it best, but he would tell that story in front of all these Middle Easterners, and they would all say the same thing. The son, the older son, kills the father. And that's left off in that parable because why? Who's the father in the prodigal son? 
God is. Specifically, who's telling the story, by the way? Jesus Christ, God, is telling the story to who? To the Pharisees. And what did they know when he's telling them the story? They know full well that they're the who in that story. They know full well that they're the older son. And they know full well that they're going to kill him. But do they kill him? Do the Pharisees kill God? No, you can't kill God. What, are you crazy? Do they want to kill God? Yes. But hopefully when I say fatted calf, that's where everybody goes. But I want you to not go there anymore. When I say fatted calf, where do I want you to go now? Witch of Endor. That witch of Endor, she runs around and gets that fatted calf. you got to ask why. Why does she want one? What is she doing with it? Does she know what it means? What does it mean? What does a fatted calf mean in Luke 15? The fatted calf is a celebration for what? The restoration of the youngest son. Who's he in that story now? Come on. He's the Gentiles. That's correct. And the older son should have rejoiced that the younger son was restored. Instead, he hated the younger son and wanted to kill the father. That is the Pharisees. Everybody knew that, by the way, when Christ told that story. Now, having said that, the witch of Endor also has a fatted calf, and she also knows that it is a symbol of restoration, and she wants somebody to eat it. Who does she want to have eat that? She wants Saul to eat that. This is very important to her. She also bakes unleavened bread. What's unleavened bread? Well, that's from the Feast of Passover. That is a bread that represents Christ. That is the bread of what ordinance? Come on, you can do this. Communion, where it represents the flesh of Christ, right? She wants the fatted calf, the meal of restoration, the unleavened bread. She wants that to be eaten by Saul and herself and those two men. But we have to solve the fatted calf. We have to solve the unleavened bread. We have to solve the talit, or what's called the mantle of... uh, of Samuel. Now understand this. Everyone will tell you that Paul made tents. No, Paul didn't make tents in the way that you make tents or that I think of a tent. He made what was a replica of the tent of Moses or the tabernacle. He made talits. He made prayer shawls. They are designed. When Balaam came out and looked over uh, with uh, at the nation of Israel all out there for prayer time, they all had a talit on their head. All the men did and they looked like miniature Tents of Moses, miniature tabernacles of Moses, which was there in front of them. So millions of men wearing these little talits on their heads. That's what a Pharisee Paul made. So that's why he says to you, don't you know that you're a temple? Don't you know that you're a tabernacle? Your body is patterned after the tabernacle of Moses. Now that's for free. I just threw it in there. Is it in the notes? No, about 80% of what I've said so far isn't. So I got to speed up. Unfortunately, what don't I have? No caffeine. Now, this is another day. I'm allowed to go out for about four hours, then I have to go home and reduce the hernia. Uh, So I'm not going to be able to stay here afterwards and argue with you or talk to you. So I'm sorry about that. What's that mean for you, though? That's right, more buffet for you. Not allowed to eat after what? Eight o'clock or something. I can't even drink water. That's Lindsay that said that. Yeah. Isn't that right? That's true. 
Okay. Where am I? Yes, I'm a professional. We have to solve the fatted calf, the unleavened bread, this mantle of Samuel or the talit of Samuel. The, who else has a talit in Scripture really fast? Christ does. He wears one, Revelation 19. There is no writing on his leg. Get out of that. There's no tattoo on his leg for those of you trying to justify that silliness. He has a, a talit on his head, and in the knots of the talit is the appellation king of kings. But anyway, solve the unleavened bread, the mantle of Samuel, the witch, the king, the two men, and, of course, Samuel himself coming out. He's an old man wearing a talit. What he does, what he says, and why. Why does God send Samuel to Saul at this particular time? <clears throat> and then we get all that figured out. We place that side by side with 2 Samuel 12. That's the parable of Nathan, if you've been here. That's the death of the child born. That tells you that's a Christ figure. That's Solomon, who's really called beloved of God, which means Jedediah, or Jedediah means that. <clears throat> so God's name for Solomon is Jedediah. You need to know that. Which follows what? Nathan's parable, the death of the child born. Solomon, Jedediah, follows the rape of Bathsheba and the murder of the undeceived Uriah, 2 Samuel 11. So we get 1 Samuel 28, we stick it with 2 Samuel 12. And hopefully you've got all of that, and, we're, and you're already asking now the obvious question, which is what does the Amalekite trilogy have to do with 2 Samuel 11 and 12? The actual question really is not that. The actual question would be, how does Saul in 1 Samuel 28 connect to David in 2 Samuel 12? Now, normally I'd be putting this on the board because Amanda likes me to do that. And you can tell pretty much Amanda and Lindsay run things around here. So just imagine to yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's true, isn't it? It's that both of you are laughing because you know it's funny. And it's only funny because of the element of truth in it. Yeah, someday maybe I'll get to run something around here. I, I can only hope. Maybe after the surgery I get my strength back. Okay, and then, then no, no beam is safe again. He did tell me this. I asked him. I said, Dr. Muffalato, and a really nice man again with no sense of humor, but very nice. And I really don't want my surgeons with a sense of humor. I don't want a guy dancing around. I, I want just like this. I want this very serious, meticulous man. And I, I asked him, uh, can I play trumpet on Tuesday? And he looked at me quietly said, you can play trumpet on Monday. There is nothing you can do that will affect what I have done to you. You cannot rip it loose. I wouldn't recommend that you play trumpet. It's serious. I don't know that you can stand the pain. But you can play trumpet and not affect what I do. He wasn't joking. I thought it was funny. This is not a man that jokes. Anyway, and that's a good thing. They don't know that there's 10,000 people listening to me and that if they cause me any problems, those folks in China will come after them. Might be a, might be a while. It's all I got is a threat. You know, likability, pathetic, and then all that's left is I can slander you on the internet, I guess. Not really. I wouldn't. 
How does Saul in 1 Samuel 28 connect to David in 2 Samuel 12? That's the key. That's what we're doing. Saul and David, boy, they are, they are, they're always together. One is removed as king of Israel. Notice, removed as king for what he did. He wasn't, he was, he was taken from leadership. Understand that. Didn't kill the Amalekites, taken from leadership. One is removed as king, contrasted or compared with one who is given the Davidic covenant. Saul, David are, are inexorably linked together. They're dogged, relentless, and that's actually true. They're literally chasing each other around. Saul mostly chasing David, but they are put together and they hardly are ever separated. Whenever you see something that David is doing or that Saul is doing, look and find out what the other one is doing. You're going to find them sticking together a lot. They do the same thing. Gets to the point where David goes out and collects Saul's bones, right? It's the last or the third part of the Gibeonite saga. It's very important to know. That's the seven hanged, if you were missing. That seven hanged. If I tell you there's a seven hanged, then you've got to see that seven is what in numerology. Read your E. Ethelbert W. Bullinger. That's why he called himself E.W. Bullinger, by the way. He's hiding from that Ethelbert. Can't blame him for that. But seven is what? It's one of the four godly numbers. What are the four godly numbers? Come on. You know, three is one, seven is one, ten is one, twelve is one. Okay? Those are your complete numbers. So, that's why there are twelve apostles. That's why there's twelve tribes. That's why uh, there's ten commandments. Triunity and seven. Seven is a godly number. So when I see the seven hanged, I know that's, I can just put godly numbered hanged. I got the godly numbered hanged. Okay, I get rid of the number. I'll just put godly hanged. So clearly I have a picture of Christ there in the last of the Gibeonite saga. Anyway, I'm giving the Gibeonite saga a little plug because I can't get anybody to listen to it on the internet. It's one of my favorites. Everybody hates it. They all view it. 120 views, 15 people, actually. So I'm trying to help it out. Anyway, that's what we're doing so that we can move beyond Romans 3. All of that stuff that I just dumped on you again and we're sifting through, all of that is to get through Romans 3 where David's confession is placed by the Holy Spirit through Paul to prove something. David's confession is in Romans 3 to prove that the just shall live by faith or to reward it ever so slightly. Salvation, eternal life comes through grace, belief in the blood of Christ alone. So all of this stuff that I'm doing to you is to prove to you that just shall live by faith or that grace alone is salvation. Salvation by grace alone. Okay. First Samuel 15. Again, can't even consider rereading it. Feel free to read it while I meander around here a little bit. And meander is the perfect word for what I'm doing today. It does lead to the witch of Endor and the rising of Samuel and the fatted calf, but it's going to be a little bit tricky. Remember all of that. The fatted calf, the witch of Endor, the unleavened bread, the subsequent death of the king of Jerusalem with his two men. I have the king of Jerusalem and his two men, and they go to die. Obedient death for the king. Okay, so you, you put that in your head. We did that a couple of weeks ago, too, for those of you who missed that. Why did 
the which of indoor thing even happened? Why did I, those two men go? Why the fatted calf? Why did Samuel come? Why did Saul go to his death? What is all of this about? Why did it occur? It occurs because, because what? Saul's in this spot. This is consequences. For what? He did not. That's correct. He refused to kill Agag. He refused to kill the Amalekites. He was ordered to kill men, women, children, infants, animals. Commanded by God, 1 Samuel 15, and he wouldn't do it. So for this reason, we're here. And now we got to ask the obvious questions. Beginning with, why does God order this, the killing of the men, women, children, infants, animals? Why does God order something like that? Have to pro- and your first instinct should be what? What should your first, first instincts of the, of the shallow student of scripture, of the uninformed, of the unsaved, when they read something like that, is bad God, God bad, killing poor little fuzzy puppies. God is uh, capricious, God is, uh, unloving, hateful, spiteful, uh, unjustified, unfair. That, I, I see it in almost every commentary. And you should think what? You should think necessary, love, mercy, got to be done, critical. What have the Amalekites done? What are the Amalekites doing? Even better, here's the one that I think unlocks it for you and you can now go go ahead and get something to eat. What are the Amalekites going to do if they're not wiped out? What What is it that they are going to be responsible for? How long did he wait, by the way, to wipe them out? He has a pretty good tradition with this. 300 to 400 years, I'd guess 400. We don't know for sure. He waits a long time, God does. But again, what are the Amalekites going to do? What is so wrong here? What is the great wickedness? Now, it can be, as some have... Uh, Some have, as I said two weeks ago, you see the Amalekites when they attack the hindmost of Israel... In Exodus 17 and 18, you see this typology. We have Moses, we have those that are right up against Moses, and then we have the weak-minded, the slow, the stragglers. We like to call them the, the people that come late to church and miss the music. That's it. Those. Okay. That was, I worked on that. The people who don't come to church on Super Bowl Sunday, the stragglers, the weak. They're in the back. They're the furthest from Moses. Moses is Deuteronomy 18.15, the preeminent type of Christ in all of Scripture. So you see this, and the Amalekites come and they pick these people off. That's the ones they kill. 
And God is not pleased. So that typology tells you that that is also a picture of ourselves, our flesh and our spiritual battle and the weakness that we have. The further we are away from Christ, the more likely that we're going to fall to our fleshly uh, concerns, our carnality. So that's there. But it can't just be that. I'll admit it's there. I, I know it's there. It's absolutely the case. Again, Ada Ruth Habershon, she did a fantastic position on that. So see that, know it's there, but it can't be just that. There's something else here. What is so wrong? What is the great wickedness? When God intervenes like this, when men and women and children and nursing infants and animals and he kills them all, what are we reminded of? What are we first thing we got to do when we see something like this? We go around and we collect all the other places where this has happened. What's the number one place? Sodom. Genesis 6. No attic flood. Well done. We're not reminded, necessarily reminded, of Genesis 6 and Genesis 19. So the natural progressing question would be what? Yes. Out of the front row comes is what is happening in the flood, or Genesis 6, and Sodom in Genesis 19, is it happening here in 1 Samuel 15 with the Amalekites? Is it the same great wickedness? What do you think? How, how, I like to call mankind pretty much a Labrador, because I have one. And if I put a ball on the floor, it won't eat food. It won't care about any other dog. It won't care about anything but the ball. Chase the ball. That's what we want to do. And we human beings, we're very similar. We're, we're really simple to figure out. We have our things that we do, and we do them over and over and over again. You don't need to tell me what those things are that you're doing, because I know. How do I know? I'm doing you're chasing your symbol that's the ball. I'm chasing mine. There's okay. There's five or six maybe. Human behavior is the easiest thing to ever figure out that there is because the repetitiveness of it is astonishing. So the natural progressing question would then be, how is Agag and the Amalekites connected to the great evil of Genesis 6 and Sodom? And by the way, uh, Genesis 6 and Sodom have Babel in between because I believe that what happened in the Noetic flood and what happened at Sodom is exactly what is happening at the Tower of Babel. I did a lecture on that 2007. So, and that is on Sermon Audio if you would like to find that. And uh, I believe that you're going to see that that has something to do with blood. Nimrod was a, was an incredible killer. He was a man that murdered, we have no idea. So what's the obvious question? He's very efficient. He made Pol Pot and Stalin and Hitler look like Boy Scouts. Now, what was he killing all these people for? What was he trying to do? While he's killing all of these people, he's building this facility. And he knows God is coming. He's smart. And so what is he doing? I, I think what he's doing in Babel is exact. it's a Babel sandwich, if you will. That's what I call it in the past. I have Genesis 6, Sodom and Gomorrah, Babel. 
All, all is the same thing. Henry Morris, if you'd like to know later, did the definitive work on that. But the point of it was to defeat death. Defeat death. All of it, you see the Nephilimic element in Sodom. Who were they after when they came in to visit them? Two angels that were in the form of men, right? I have angels and daughters of men in Genesis 6. So I think it's obvious that Nimrod knew what he was doing in that regard. Okay. Why didn't Saul do what he was commanded? God said, go and kill all these Amalekites. Do it. It's got to be done. It is exactly what needed to be done. It is not some arbitrary thing. It is precisely what God had to have done at the time. And Saul doesn't do it. And then Saul does something even more inexplicable. He tries to lie about it. And that's one of the big does in all of Scripture. You've got to be kidding me. Duh. I'm going to lie to Samuel. Samuel says, hey, I can hear the bleeding sheep. I see Agag. I don't think he killed everybody. Oh, yeah, we killed them all. Kept a few sheep and kept Agag. And it's the people that wanted to. Who else is listening to this? God is. Omniscient God. Does he know how many Amalekites got away? Yes, he does. He knows. What was wrong, by the way, I'll say it again, with these animals? Why did God want to kill, make sure all the animals were also killed? Why did Samuel then take the sword and hack Agag to pieces with it? Okay? Remember, Samuel is wearing a mantle. He's an old man. He takes his sword and he slaughters the king of the Amalekites and he does it at Gilgal. That's very important. The Amalekites, the ones who first attacked Israel, first to attack, ask again, why did they attack? Anybody could be first, but these are the first. They don't know at the time. They don't know Ada Ruth Habershon and that they're a wonderful type of, of the flesh and the spiritual natures in conflict. They're attacking Israel. Why? Everybody else is afraid of Israel. Israel's got a pillar of cloud over the top of it. It's like a, a I don't know what to call it, a flying aircraft carrier. That's not even close to what it is. And these guys are attacking. Who attacks? What kind of people are these people? And God said, I'm going to blot you out for this. Very important. Oops, almost lost my pen. And if, I, if it fell on the floor, it would stay there for the rest of the sermon. Okay. Why did they attack? Certainly, as I said on February 6th, you'll, you should note Revelation 19.12 here. I have an old man wearing a mantle an ancient man, if you will, hacking Agag to death with a sword. In 1912, a revelation, I have the Ancient of Days. That's a Daniel 7 reference. That is Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days. It's a great name for him. He's outside of time. He's the creator of the created order. He created time. He created matter, space, and energy. He is the one slaying the Antichrist in 1912, slaughtering his army with his sword, right? Wearing his talit. So the killing of Agag and the killing of the Antichrist have a clear relationship. It's up to us now to reason what the totality of that relationship is, and on we'll go. Also remember that Agag is ended and slain, as I said, at Gilgal, and that's the place of circumcision. That's the place of obedience. The sign of, of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision, and that and that makes, if, if you've been here for those lectures, oh boy, were those heavily attended, the circumcision lectures. 
Those are going crazy on the internet. Everybody wants to go, go study circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant of grace. It is the sign of salvation by grace. And that is how you get Gilgal to Romans, by the way, where, where grace is defended, if, and not defended, that's not, grace is established in the New Testament. Now, what I'm going to say next, where I'm headed, off into the cornfield, it may not seem to connect to 1 Samuel 15. It may not seem, but I hope it does to you eventually. Uh, I believe you'll see what I, why I've placed it here. Maybe you will, perhaps you will, hopefully someday you will, and, um, and I'm going to do it. It is important to understand a couple of things at all times when you're reading Scripture. My, my rules, I have rules for reading scripture. Rule number one, you should be able to say it back to me, um, as I say it. Christ is God. Christ is always God. Christ is never not God. He's always omniscient. He's always omnipotent. He's always omnipresent. He's always good. He has no sin in him. If you ever make him afraid, you have put sin in him and you've taken his omniscience away and you've declared him not to be God. Sorry about your wishing to be like Christ. Okay, I'm not really sorry. He's God. We're not. Know that. Read Scripture that way. When you do that, Scripture opens up for you. Okay, that's how you start. Then it's a good idea to know that Genesis 3.15 runs throughout Scripture. It's everywhere. Every time you find something, you'll find Genesis 3.15, almost in all stories in the Old Testament. It's everywhere, underneath just like the portraits of Christ are there. Genesis 3.15 is, of course, the seed of the woman, the, the Christ, will mortally strike the head of the seed of the serpent. Find, and the, I'm sorry, and the seed of the serpent, the Antichrist, will wound the Christ. So that's Genesis 3.15, the seed versus the seed. One is fatally, mortally struck, that is the Antichrist, the other is wounded. You've heard me say many times that I believe the wounding occurred at Gethsemane. Christ, when he is wounded, is obvious. When God is wounded, it is obvious because God does what? He weeps, and he weeps for the lost. And he weeps for Israel at the crucifixion at Gethsemane. That is uh, where the wounding occurs, where the mortality of the Antichrist, yeah, that is in Revelation 19. So the Christ-Antichrist conflict is underneath all of Scripture, and therefore it is underneath all of humanity, all of human history. And, and, and just as we see the turmoil of the Middle East, uh, we're separating, by the way, nations into the confederacy of Ezekiel 38. They're there. They're ready to go. They're happening in your lifetime. In your lifetime, you have had the two world wars. You have the sign of the earthquakes, the world wars, nation against nation. Don't worry about wars and rumors against wars. But when you see world war and you see the confederacy of Ezekiel 38 form and you see the rebirth of the nation of Israel, all of that has happened uh, not in my lifetime, but certainly in, in, in a couple of you guys here. I won't identify you by name. Okay, there's five of you. Congratulations. You have seen incredible stuff. And the rest of us, we're seeing incredible stuff. We're seeing the rebirth 
of the nation, I'm sorry, the, the confederacy of Ezekiel 38 coming together. And just as we see Iran's political leadership, who are they clamoring for? It's all over the news. Who are they clamoring for? Every time Ahmadinejad does a speech, he mentions somebody. Who is it that he mentions? Yeah, he, the 12th Imam, the Mahidi, or Mahidi. Okay? The 12th Imam, their leader. And that leader, by the way, that they're wishing for bears every characteristic of the Antichrist. Chief among them is the Mahdi will come and exterminate all the Jews. He'll rule for seven years. He, he will take over the Middle East. He, the twelfth, he comes out of a pit. They think that that is the, the Christ. And they are wrong. That is the Antichrist. And that is happening in your lifetime. They believe if enough chaos is, occurs, if the world is thrown into chaos, the Mahdi will come, the 12th Imam, out of his hole that he is hiding in. And I think they're right. They just don't know who he is. They will find out. His goal is to kill all of them. He will lead them all to Revelation 19, where he knows death by sword from the ancient of days will await. That's his plan. We should remember Genesis 3.15, the Christ mortally striking with the sword, the Antichrist, the wounding of Christ has already come to pass. That's Gethsemane. That's the crucifixion. So, again, everything of great significance that happened in Scripture is Genesis 3.15. Also keep to the forefront now, 1 Corinthians 4.9. I won't read it, but you should know about it. 1 Corinthians 4.9. This is where God put the apostles on display. The word is literally theater. He puts them on display, theater, for the whole of the angelic host to watch them as they are massacred and killed, as they are sacrificed, as they are martyred for their faith. 1 Corinthians 4.9, also for humanity to witness. But the whole of the angelic host watches the saved uh, as they are martyred. Do not forget the angelic host are watching all of this. Don't set them aside. Mike likes to say all the time, it is not about you, it is about them. To disregard the angelic host in this mess of sin is a mistake. These are angels are called all kinds of things. They have different statuses. They're called princes and chief princes, princes, almost said princesses, but there aren't any female angels. Sorry about touched by an angel. If you think they're female angels, you are, what's the word I want? Yeah, wrong. And, and there aren't any. And I feel bad for you. Because I don't want you to be illiterate. I want you to know that they are male, always male in Scripture. It's very important. Why is it very important? Because of Genesis 3.15. Why Why did I go there? Well, you always go there. When do I go? Where do I go next? They must be male. Why? Genesis 6. That's right. That's how it works. Pretty soon you will put all of these things together really fast. Much faster than me. How come I know that? I'm old now. I'm slowing down. I may have thrown the last beam of my life. I certainly think I have. 
Have I thrown the last child? Probably not. Okay. But I have princes, chief princes, elect, watchers, and holy ones. In addition, I have living creatures. Those are the cherubim and the seraphim. Seraphim, fiery, burning ones. Same word is used at the bronze, um, the fiery snakes, at the bronze snake, where the snake is put on the... You know, all you got to do is look and you're saved, right? There's your salvation by grace. But seraphim, fiery, burning ones, the same word, cherubim, seraphim. They're living creatures, and they're the highest order of the angelic beings. And Satan is the anointed cherubim, Ezekiel 28, 14 through 16. So I have princes, chief princes, elect, watchers, and holy ones. Those are the angels. Then I have cherubim and seraphim, the living creatures. And you may take the position they're also angels. I'll let you have it. Uh, you can defend that. Uh, it'll work either way, which means what? That the position that I'm going to give you, I can defend from regardless of how you attack me here. But I won't be here today. You'll have to come back next week to fight with me. But Satan is the anointed cherubim, the highest of the high. He's filled to flowing with wisdom. Do not think he is stupid. Therefore, now you know that Adam could not be stupid because Adam was not deceived by the highest cherubim who was filled with overflowing with wisdom. He is perfect in beauty. Satan is. He's the seal of perfection. He was established by God in authority over all other angels, Ezekiel 28, 14 through 16, you make the case of all of creation. So he's he's the prime minister, if you will, to God. But Ezekiel 28, 12 through 14 says all of that was true until iniquity was found in Satan. But what I want you to get out of that is Satan is a cherubim, a living creature. It's very important to know that. Now, putting all of these together, Genesis 3, 15, humanity. Christians predominantly are on display, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. We're on theater, and the angels are watching us. What's the obvious question? Why did he put us on display? Why are they watching us? Here's the next question. What did they do? What What's the problem? We can now then note a few things that taken alone uh, and read apart might seem confusing. Revelation 12:7, for example, I have a war in heaven, a war. The angels are fighting. They fight. That happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Michael and his angels fight with the fallen, anointed cherubim Satan and Satan's angels, and it is a war. Now, do I know how it is that these beings fight? I really don't know. Do I know they can take physical form? They can. They, the angels in Sodom grabbed Lot, pulled him inside. They, they're able to do things physically. And they fight. Now, how they fight, I don't know. But they do. And Satan is defeated and thrown from heaven. And great rejoicing from Michael and his army. They rejoiced. They finally got the anointed fallen cherubim out and his angels out of heaven. Where they have, they have access to it, but they finally cast them out. 
and they cast them down to earth. And now there's great rejoicing in heaven, but there's great terror on earth. Satan is array enraged, Revelation 12:17, and he attacks those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the Jews and the Christians that are on this earth during the tribulation. He goes after them. And the beast from the abyss... Who's that? That is the Antichrist who has come out of his abyss where he has been put. The beast from the abyss is called now to, by Satan to begin slaughtering the Jews. We're at the halfway point of the tribulation and those who were converted during the tribulation. That's the ministry of the two witnesses and the 144,000. And, and back we are now to where? Genesis 3.15. Where are we headed for? As the beast, yes, we're headed towards the mortal wounding of the Antichrist. As the beast begins to start slaughtering Jews and Christians, we are headed towards the, the mortal head wound. I want you to recognize Romans 8.22. We'll get there in, oh, maybe a year. I'm kidding. Two months. The entire creation groans. The entire creation groans. Both the heavens and the earth. John 3.16, so badly read so often. Hold up your sign. I appreciate it, but at least know what you're saying. John 3.16, for God so loved the entire creation. The word is cosmos there. It isn't world. He, the entire creation groans. The entire creation is in turmoil. The physical is in turmoil. The supernatural, likewise, in turmoil. Nothing is how it was designed. Nothing in this creation is unaffected, both the physical and the metaphysical. And remember, remember this, the lake of fire, the place of judgment, the place of internal, eternal separation from the love and the goodness of God, the prison for sin and evil, the, the lake of fire was first made, was originally designed for who? For Satan and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Lake of Fire was not made for humanity. It was first made for Satan and his angels. Humanity gets to go there. Yay. It's not a good thing. Next we should note, Jesus Christ has three offices. And they come in order. First he's what? Prophet. Then he's what? High priest. That's what he is now. When the high priest office is over, he becomes king of the earth. So prophet, he is on earth. High priest, he's in heaven above. When he's the king, he's back on earth in Jerusalem, on the throne of the high mountain in the temple. What should we expect? That's the Christ order. What should we expect? We should expect the Antichrist order to be a... Very close counterfeit, exact counterfeit. We would expect the Antichrist to be on the earth. Then we would expect him to leave for what? 2,000 years. He did not go into heaven, so where did he go? He went into a pit, an abyss, right? Okay? And then he would do what? He would return to become what? King of the earth. Let me quote you 17.8 of Revelation. At, John wrote this. So John the Apostle is writing this. The king was. I'm sorry. The king was. Sorry. The beast was. John wrote. So that means John saw the beast. Is not. 
So currently the beast was and is not to John. So the beast was and now he is no longer there. Will ascend from the abyss. So John knows that he's in the, the abyss and will go to perdition where Christ will go to uh, the restoration of all things. The beast will go to perdition. By the way, the beast is called the son of perdition. Let me repeat it. The beast was, is not, will ascend from the abyss, will go to perdition. 17.8 Revelation. So the Antichrist was at the time of John. The Antichrist has gone to the abyss. By the way, while he's in the abyss, while he's in Tartarus, he is the high priest, if you will, the king of the fallen angels from where? Genesis 6. The angels of Genesis 6 are imprisoned in the Tartarus abyss. And he is the king, Revelation 9-11, over the fallen angels of Genesis 6. And that's a very important question. How can the Antichrist, how did he get into the abyss? When did he go to the abyss? When was he on earth? He would obviously be on earth at the same time that the Christ was on earth. All of these lectures, by the way, are now on sermon audio, but I have to bring them up here because I always left something out and today I'm going to fix it. The Antichrist was at the time of John. The Antichrist has gone to the abyss, the pit. That, by the way, is Acts 1.25. The Antichrist will return and rule the world, Revelation 13.7.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Okay, got all of that now. The Christ, the number of Jesus Christ, the number of God is what? 777. You can make the case that the number of Jesus Christ, salvation, Hebrew, Hebrew gematria, is 888. But the number of God, 777. Seven connected to seven connected to seven. Does that make sense? Yeah, I got three sevens. I have the triunity of God. I have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Seven connected to seven connected to seven. The Antichrist is, what's his number? You should all know that. It's in every movie. It's 666, right? Six, connected to six, connected to six. What's the obvious question? Now, it's abundantly clear, obvious in fact, that God protects his remnant. He protects his Jews. Did you think I wasn't going to answer the question about the 666? I am. It's it's right here. Oh, how much time do I got? Oh, golly. I probably will make it as long as I hustle. <sighs> okay. It's a, can you imagine how the Internet people are feeling right now? They've listened for 50 minutes. Yeah, it's terrible. Okay, it's abundantly clear, obvious, in fact, that God protects his remnant. He protects his remnant, and you cannot get rid of him. He always saves somebody. We see that with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Elijah believed he was alone, he was despairing, and God said, no, I've got 7,000. I've protected 7,000. Jezebel had almost wiped everybody out, but no, they hadn't. There's, again, a remnant of Jews and, and that are believers and that is the case. The church was started with this remnant to the first 13 popes, as you know, were Jews. Uh, the, the original Christian church was Jews. The Gentiles came uh, slowly, but we've come now in force. We see that with also with Noah in the entire world. Genesis 6 is in wickedness, but he protects Noah and his family. That's his remnant. Noah is without 
contamination. The word is tamen. Without, he is righteous. He is not contaminated. So we see it also with Lot at Solomon. He takes Lot out. We see it with the 70 that go into Egypt, Genesis 46, 27. We see it with Moses in, in Exodus 2. Moses is saved, right? The Pharaoh tries to wipe all the kids out. Moses is protected. In fact, ends up living with the Pharaoh, right? And the Pharaoh tries to kill Israelite children, and Herod tries to kill Israelite children. And the Antichrist will try to kill all of Israel. He'll try to exterminate them all. Will they succeed? Did they succeed? No. God always protects his remnant. They persevere. They, sur- they survive. So what should we expect? That's true of God. What should we expect? That's also true of the Antichrist. We should then expect Satan to have a corresponding counterfeit remnant, the negative to the positive, a remnant that he protects. All of Satan's were killed in the flood, right? No, they weren't. We can prove that because of who? Because of Agag. Because of Goliath. We have Nephilim that have survived the flood. So who was it? Who was on the ark? We know it wasn't Noah. We know it wasn't Noah's wife. We know it wasn't any of the three of Noah's sons. Who's left? I have three daughters of men on there, don't I? One of them is contaminated. All of Satan's were killed in the flood, the ungodly, but one was on the ark. And I think you can, you can check me out. Go ahead. See if I'm all alone in this. I'm not. I have many books that, that agree with me because, well, okay, those guys are dead and long old. So I can't take credit, but I will. Just as God protected the uncontaminated Noah and his family, what's the obvious question there? Okay, Satan protects the contaminated. What's the obvious question there? Both are the same question. The uncontaminated, uncontaminated from what are the contaminated? Because the word is contaminated. Contaminated with what? We know why God protects the uncontaminated, right? We know why, right? You know why God protects his remnant uncontaminated Noah, don't you? Why does he do it? What's the reason he does it? Come on. You can do this. Yell it out. The answer is always the same. Yell it out. Genesis 3.15. It's the seed of the woman. He is protecting the seed of the woman. We must have an uncontaminated woman. And so why did Satan protect the contaminated then? What's the answer? Genesis 3.15, he is protecting the seed of the serpent. Okay, the seed of the woman eventually becomes Jesus Christ, the God-man. The seed of the serpent, therefore, must be the cherubim man, right? Got to be. The patterns would be the same. Now, I'll leave you with this because we're out of time. It's blinking. So, and this is where I solve the 666 for you. I'm serious. There's three types of created free will beings, isn't there? There's angels, there's living creatures, the cherubim and the seraphim, and then there's mankind. Three types of created free will beings. Three of them.
There's three of them. There's three persons in the Godhead, the triunity of God, the holy, 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 Revelation 4, 6, the 7, 7, 7, versus the 6, 6, 6. The 6 connected to 6 connected to 6. It is wisdom to know the Antichrist, Revelation 13, 18. It is wisdom to put the 6 connected to the 6 connected to the 6 together. It isn't just the gematria of his name. It follows the 777 and the 888, as we would expect. Did you figure it out? If you didn't, we'll do it next week. But by the way, that's why Saul had to kill the Amalekites. But he did not. The Amalekites escaped. Some survived. Actually, one Amalekite takes credit for killing Saul, doesn't he? He says to David, I killed Saul. Isn't it ironic that the one, that the one that Saul didn't get comes back to kill him? We'd expect that. Most people think the Amalekite didn't kill Saul, but I'm going to make the case that he did. You are almost dismissed. Let's rise for the last song.